genre. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Nick Jimenez. I'm Scott Corelli, who is just now realizing that for this miniseries, we should have changed it to the podcast that boldly goes into the entire filmographies. <laughs> uh, it's not too late. I mean, we're only halfway through. <laughs> yeah, we're only halfway through. <laughs> uh yeah, today we boldly continue or whatever our mini series <laughs> on <laughs> on the Star Trek film franchise with the fifth film adapted from the legendary Gene Roddenberry TV series. It's 1989's The Final Frontier. And we have a guest joining us to talk about campfires, galactic peace and the existence of God. It's Kevin Miller. That's me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Le- non-ironically excited to talk about this movie yeah happy to have you uh so real quick god real or not let's hear (laughs) god yeah i think he's in i think he's in here the human heart (laughs) (laughs) which is a weird line delivery when one of the two people you're speaking to is an alien but that's that's one minor detail (laughs) in a much bigger movie (laughs) our human homo sapien heart (laughs) uh so kevin what is your like personal like relationship with this movie and like the star trek movies as a whole yeah so i this is why i'm so excited about this i I looked up the release date of 1989 and i was 11 years old when this came out so as a lifelong star trek fan i might have been excited at any point but 11 years old was just this peak the next generation was i think three seasons in at this Mm -hmm. point and so my love for that was peaking and uh, for yeah, just ever all the stars aligned to create a movie at my maximum uh, level of enthusiasm, which is a way of saying don't trust anything I say in favor of this movie because it's just one of those that landed in that nostalgia part of your brain <laughs> to the point that you're much more forgiving of the really obvious flaws than you should be. But I saw this movie twice in I think a week of it opening. Uh, I pretty sure I read the novelization. I definitely read the comic adaptation. Uh, and I even remember assembling a little plastic, you know, the painted plastic models of the shuttlecraft uh, from this movie. So I was just at 100% on my trekkiness uh, when <laughs> Star Trek V came out. And it was much later that I realized that I had hooked my wagon, hitched my horse to uh, kind of a clunker of a movie. <laughs> That's that's great. That's something I can totally relate to. And we talk about it on the show where, for whatever reason, we are at the right age to really get hit in the face with the marketing machine Mm -hmm. and was just really primed 
for you know whatever we were you know like jurassic park three for me because i was like in fourth mm. grade and that's yes. like you know <laughs> some people think of that as like the worst one but i was like well i had like a lunchbox of that movie it, it's yeah. so funny that you mention 11 years old specifically because mm-hmm. i was 11 in 1996 and that was the height of my trekkiness mm. which was the release of first contact Oh, that's um, so, oh, that's so much better a movie to get. Well, on. I mean, yes, <laughs> but yes, I was much luckier than you were. Definitely. Yes, but really. it was still it's just funny that it's also 11 years old. That was like yes. one of the first movies, maybe the first movie that I saw multiple times, like by myself. Like I just right. went to the theater to see it again and again and again. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. so yeah, 11 years old. It's a special time for a Trekkie. Uh, it's a special <laughs> time. Yeah. Just for a nerd who's just like developing their own opinions and taste and things and, and mm-hmm. developing an interest in like, uh, looking things up online and just discovering more, finding what the communities are, you know, you're, you're a bit more passive when you're a kid watching Star Trek, Star Wars, and you're just like, oh yeah, there it is on my, on the, the screen. And yeah, uh, you're more inquisitive when you're, when you mm-hmm. hit that age. Yeah, and then you almost kind of return to that passivity as you get older. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's absolutely true. I just, like, I know, again, lifelong Star Wars fan as well, and I know about all these, you know, Bad Batch and everything, and I'm glad they exist and that other people are lo- loving them, but I just, yeah, just uh, more old and, old and jaded, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I So I know that I did not see... Um, in 1989, I know that I did not see Batman in theaters because the only memories I have of Batman 89 is like watching the VHS tape with the Diet uh-huh. Coke commercial in front of it. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, that. and so I think in the summer of 1989, I saw, um, The Last Crusade and this, I, okay. I believe those in the, and I believe those were like two of my very first movies I ever saw in a movie theater. Uh, um, so like, awesome. I also have like a very like nostalgic feeling mm-hmm. about this movie because yeah. it was like one of the earliest memories I ever have of like sitting in a theater and watching a movie. Um, right. and, and so for the longest time, you know, at like four years old seeing this movie, I just thought that <laughs> Star Trek was like, oh, these three friends, they like go and they like do stuff together and then they get into right. an adventure. Um, uh-huh. so like the camping stuff never seemed weird to me. The rocket right. boot stuff never seemed it, them singing row, row, row your boat. I was like, oh, this just must be the kind of friends they are is that they just yeah. like hang out and sing songs <laughs> together. <laughs> it, it's interesting. It's been interesting. I keep jumping between Star Trek and Star Wars, but, uh, it's been interesting to watch the people who were kids when the prequels come out grow up and be exactly as forgiving of the obvious flaws as I was of like Return of the Jedi, you know, which I was five years old when, when that came out and right. you know, Ewoks, they're cute. I, even to this day, I cannot bring myself to be annoyed by Ewoks. They're fantastic. And so, yeah, sure. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting to watch that phenomenon in the next generation, mm-hmm. so to speak. And you, and you know, I'm not as, I don't have my ear to the ground with, I guess, quote, Star Trek Twitter or Star Trek fandom. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the, the way that I am in the weeds with like Star Wars or MCU. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I grew up in the 90s of kind of the knowledge of, you know, the old odds and even rule. Yeah. Yes, of, yes. The odds and evens. Yes. Like these are the bad ones. These are the good ones. And I'm wondering if that is also changing with the generations. Mm. Like you I, mean looking back on these movies? 
like yeah. is the is the uh, the 16 17 year old trekkie today in in, uh. in 2023 are do they have the same like animosity towards some of these movies or do they kind of look at it all as like a gumbo <laughs> I, yeah. I definitely think the gumbo analogy is more is more true <laughs> at this point though i i do i i don't think there's anyone who would argue like i guess some people could say that like motion picture is more boring than this one but i mm. i do think that this is unanimously sort of agreed upon that this is the worst of the original cast movies yeah um yeah but I actually feel like this is still more watchable than a lot of movies, just in general. Like, this is still watchable. I think the main problem, because I, I have a lot to say about Shatner as a director, um, yeah. uh, because I'm I'm more impressed, honestly, than, than anything. Because, yeah. um, I, I mean, this movie looks like a movie. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, say what you will about Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, his movies are better. But, like, they do look a lot less cinematic than this one does. This looks very cinematic, this movie. Yeah. Um, to almost a ridiculous degree at points, but it's still impressive. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that uh, the main problem that this movie has is that I don't think the script was good enough. And mm -hmm. I think that... The original plan, and I, I'm sure I'm stepping on your toes a little bit, but this is, like, legendary. Um uh -huh. Uh, Nick, the 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 original plan being that Sean Connery was going to play, um, to to play uh, Cybok. That's exactly what this movie needed was a big A list star in that role because this role is nothing without the gravitas that an yeah. actor like Sean Connery could have brought to the character. Um, just that natural gravitas of like I'm Sean Connery in a Star Trek movie. That's what this movie needed. And without it, the guy who plays Cybok, God bless him, he's doing the best he can, but he brings absolutely yeah. no gravitas to this role whatsoever. And I'm like, I just don't believe you as a cult leader, even remotely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because he's just not, he's he's not like, yeah, he just doesn't have that charisma and that like, that thing that draws your eye the way that somebody right. like Sean Connery would. He would have, uh, yeah, I mean, all of that is true, but I also think, and maybe more importantly, if you get a Sean Connery in there, he's like, you got to give this script another pass before I sign up. Totally, you know? totally, Like, this totally. is the, the one thing I noticed, I just rewatched it this afternoon, the one big thing I noticed about the villain is that he has no origin story. He's just, like, broadly alludes to have had a, a vision and yeah. we'd never find out where the hell that, that even came from. Right. Like Spock tells a secondhand story that doesn't even mention the quest he's on now. So Right, ah, right. Wow. Cause like imagining that first scene, the opening scene of this movie in the desert, guy riding with the horse the blue horse yes. with the horn, you know? Yeah. And the he has a hood up, right? You would get the double reveal. You would get the reveal yeah. that like, oh shit, Sean Connery's in this movie. And right. then the hood drops, and you're like, "Oh shit, he's playing a Vulcan!" Like Vulcan. that's so cool. That's a cool like that's... double hit. And I think that's uh -huh. what was necessary to really kickstart this movie, jumpstart this movie. Um, and and as a result, we just get. <laughs> I remember like when he's laughing, Bethany was just like, "Why? What is this? Why is he laughing?" I was like, "He's a Vulcan. It's a, it's weird that he's laughing." And she's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> you know, because it's just like it just lacks any 
Gravitas. Right. I don't know. Any Gravitas, yes. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I, I definitely have answers to – I don't have an answer as to why Connery turned it down or even if he was given a formal offer, but – the, I, be- uh, I the- believe the reason was scheduling conflicts with Last Crusade. I believe he signed up for Last Crusade first, and that's that was say, it. That'd be really funny. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, not the last time we're going to talk about that movie today. Um, yeah the 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 attempt to uh, lure Connery into the cast was so naked that Shatner had the uh, Eden like planet that they're questing after named Shakari. Oh, oh my God! Was it? What? <laughs> Holy shit! That's amazing. <laughs> as if, like, hey, you know, as a tribute to you, we're gonna make the planet sound like a baby after taking like a fifth of vodka, trying to like say your name. Oh, my uh, mind is blown. That's great. Wow. Uh, and they didn't change it. Yeah, yeah, just rolled with it. Oh, that's so good. That's up there with Ewoks being Wookiee and Reverse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, Harv Bennett was so convinced that the uh, the laughing Vulcan bit was going to like kill. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like we're going to give I... the audience something they've never seen before—a laughing Vulcan. It'll be this crazy, you know, like whoa, you know, and then nothing they were like what yeah, was crickets you know <laughs> yeah crickets <laughs> like i do think it's interesting it's just if you're a trekkie if you know you know uh but yeah it's not this big stunning thing and like not to jump into the scene by scene but i think it's a really interesting opening scene like it's different than you would expect it doesn't have any of the main cast mm-hmm. in it and you're just like oh this is you know it, mm-hmm. it catches your attention but yeah that's not the punchline that they probably expected it to be and uh, the, the laughing to credits part of it. Right. Well, and uh, to Scott's, to Scott's point, it's a very cinematic opening. Yes. yes. Oh, it's uh, yeah. Probably the best <clears throat> directing that, he does is right there in the first scene. Like, yeah, yeah, it's very like Lawrence of Arabia, that shot of Cybok yes. on the horse, like yeah. galloping towards the camera with the horizon. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that would be Shatner's MO with the movie mm-hmm. to make it, you know, big or to, you know, more and more to a point to make his Star Trek movie really mm-hmm. big and epic in scope. Uh, Scott yes. had allude, had been alluding to it all series, but uh, early on in the movies, uh, Shatner and Nimoy introduced what Shatner would call the favored nations clause. Basically anything that Leonard Nimoy received from Paramount Shatner must also receive the equivalent <laughs> So everything from trailer size to uh, 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 access to scripts, uh, authority to, you know, rewrite, to direct the story. And eventually that uh, clause would extend to directorial responsibilities. So at this point, Nemo had directed Nemo. Nimoy had directed two two Star Trek movies. And so in his negotiations for Voyage Home, Shatner I just was realized like, I that have search to. for. I just realized that search for Spock could have been called Finding Nimoy. Finding Nimoy. If we gave these titles, yes. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, in his negotiations for four, Shatner was like, "I'll do four, but only if I direct five and presumably six. And they were mm-hmm. like, "Fair enough." So, in for search for Spock and Voyage Home, Nimoy wanted to emphasize the relationship of the crew 
what the what 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 the relationships are after all this time after so many years mm-hmm. how this family has come together and really highlight the ensemble in a way that the first two movies had yeah uh shatner's kind of big he he thought that the biggest episodes of star trek were the serious ones mm-hmm. and that star trek was always a series that dealt with serious issues with amusing characters mm. okay like how can we tackle the big fundamental questions that humans have been asking themselves for as long as we've looked to the stars. Right. And to, to Shatner's in mind, to his imagination, what could be more human of a question than the existence of God? Mm-hmm. 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 So wrong. No. So uh, he fashioned a, uh, an outline for a movie where they were uh, tricked by a cyborg like character. They went by a different name at this point. Uh-huh. Um, that claimed to be God and okay. uh, traveled traveled with them to like, you know, kind of pass the great barrier as like it is in this movie uh-huh. and uh, see the face of God, meet God, and then find out that Cybok is actually the literal devil in disguise. Oh, and- oh. so they, they confirm the existence of God by like it's the actual devil. That's the uh, that's like the final revelation on the bridge of the Enterprise after they fight their way through hell is, Man. you know, Bones would be like, wow, son of a bitch. I really thought God was real for a second. And Chad would be like, oh, 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 but if the devil's real, Bones, then God must be real also. You son of a bitch. <laughs> what so- a... Uh, like I, I just what a what an insane concept for a summer blockbuster, yeah. right? <laughs> like holy shit! Most of the Star Trek movies got released in like November, like Thanksgiving holiday time, but this one was a they were like summer blockbuster because you know I I think it could be argued that 1989 is like the first like summer blockbuster movie season where there was more than just one opening you know one Uh summer blockbuster opening uh this was like you know you had like star trek you had uh indiana jones and you had um batman batman and then on top of those three things you know drifting into the fall you had like back to the future part two so it was just like a crazy year for hollywood where it was just like it was all sequels all like nerd franchises it was like kind of crazy time 1989 is wild yeah, and a and a James Bond movie, like right, yeah. right, James Bond too. Yeah, absolutely. Dang, that's interesting. I never thought like you always hear about Jaws and you know just the history of the summer blockbuster, but there's never like a given point about this is when summer was just every weekend something new. And I read today yeah. that Star Trek Five opened at number one. It, it didn't say at number one, but it opened at number one during the summer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right, which is you know after twenty years at this point. Right. Uh, of Impressive. this being like, you know, in the public consciousness. Um, I don't know if the summer release was a product of this or like just happenstance, but there was an interesting quote that I came across from producer Ralph, Ralph Winter, uh, okay. where he spoke to in the wake of four, which many people, including himself, considered to be the most successful Star Trek movie yet, both critically mm-hmm. and artistically and commercially. It was just like. Kevin, if if I could illustrate briefly the vibes of uh, filming Star Trek Four, you know that GIF of Daisy Ridley behind the scenes of Force Awakens, where she's like dancing with all the extras. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. It, it was like that with like uh, 
<laughs> Ray being Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> just a vivid smooth, mental image. smooth sailing good vibes all right. around mm-hmm. yeah and so ralph winter said that they all felt a sort of exuberance they were you know maybe a a, a lot of exuberance and not enough discernment smoking okay. their own publicity you know <laughs> we can do anything yeah so Man, uh shatner comes so with his uh so Shatner comes with his outline for uh, Star Trek V and bring, presents it to, you know, the brain trust being right. Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, who I've discovered uh, their nickname on set for him was D. D. Just D. I love That's that. That's great. As well as uh, producer, writer, Harv Bennett, and original creator, Gene Roddenberry. Mm-hmm. And uniformly across the table, none of them like this outline at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, Harv Bennett said it read more like a tone poem than an adventure story. Uh-huh. Um, Gene Roddenberry yeah. was deeply upset by the concept of uh, any kind of monotheistic Western God being confirmed in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. Right. Uh, Shatner also held a personal opinion. I don't know if he ever presented this to Gene, but he was like, I think Gene was a little resentful because he kind of tried to introduce the existence of a monotheistic God in the motion picture Mm. and (laughs) nobody liked it. And he got kicked out of the table and no one ever listened to him again. So the mind and Nemo. So in this original, uh, outline, what kind of similar to this one by one, Cybok is able to convince the crew of the enterprise to turn their back on Kirk and betray him, including bones and Spock. And Kirk is like the last sane man, the last brave man that's willing to stand up and, and, you know, question, you know, and DeForest Kelly and Nimoy hated this. Yeah. They were like, like, I'm torn on that. Like that, that kind of causes my ears to perk up because the movie we got is everyone just being effortlessly brainwashed instead of like, what you're describing sounds like a little bit more conscious choice on the part of the other cast, but yeah, the the last part of it of Shatner's the only sane man left is. I, I think brainwashing your cast may be one of my least favorite tropes in uh, blockbusters. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think about like the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, and how like we're introduced to Hawkeye as like a brainwashed, a brainwashed. goon. Yeah, right. it's just like stuff like that. That I just I never want to see that. Like it's just it, it's one yeah. of my least favorite tropes. I think it's just not as exciting or interesting as everyone as like Hollywood producers think that it is. You're just never going to engage with a character that's been right. brainwashed. Like yeah, right especially in the wake of three and four being all about the crew being this family. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about how it's executed in the movie, but yeah. So in the original outline, even Spock and McCoy turned their back on Kirk. They didn't like that. So uh, vibes were not great, but one person who did enjoy the outline was studio head at the time, Frank Mancuso. Uh-huh. And so things did move ahead with Shatner's outline, but yeah, uh, Harv, Harv Bennett was like, if you're doing this version of Star Trek five, I don't want to make Star Trek five. I've done three in a row. I'm tired. I don't like this idea. I'm out. Yeah. And uh, William Shatner had to personally like convince Bennett, like, please, like, we need you. You're the juice. You're the sauce. Like, stay on board. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't rock the boat. Like, we've kept this going so far because we've kept the ship steady. 
for yeah. almost a decade now. Mm-hmm. So right. Bennett was convinced to stay on board, but only if rewrites were made to the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, one day while just going through the pile of scripts that producers just have on the, in their offices, uh, Bennett came across a screenplay by screenwriter David Lowry okay. and uh, approached him to help them fashion a new script. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of uh, molded things into the movie that we see. But then uh, a, a series of external events would arise to prevent five from having the smooth production process that four enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, the first of those would be a WGA strike that would seriously uh, intrude upon the pre-production process, right? Mm-hmm. And effectively and I, stop the writing. Process. Remember, as a Star Trek: The Next Generation fan, like the infamous clip show happening as a result of that same strike. So Star Trek was affected right. multiple ways by this. Yeah, really. That's where the yeah, clip this- show came from. The season two, yeah, yeah. the season two finale of Next Generation, which is like largely considered the worst episode of Star Trek of any Star Trek series ever, <laughs> and it's just like it's a clip show of like the best of Riker while he's like laid out on a table while he's comatose <laughs> and dreaming. And yeah, uh, I, yeah, I actually don't hate that episode either, but you should disregard my opinion for the same reason I said before. It's just an <laughs> The prime age to be forgiving of it. So it's just him being like, God, I kicked ass. Yeah. (laughs) But but it's only two seasons worth of clips. So it's just clips. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, okay, which, how many, how much screen time does Riker have after two seasons? Let's pull every scene he's been in. Oh, it's amazing. Age 35 being like, I had a hell of a run. If only they knew, if only they would have known then that all they would have had to do was put together all the clips of him sitting in chairs and everyone would have been like, 10 out of 10, A-plus episode. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Holy crap. And then once the WGA strike ended and writing could continue, Shatner had to fly to the Himalayas for a job. If it were any other actor, I would assume it was a project, but with William Shatner, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> the, the the writer strike was 88 right is that that's when that happened yes yeah uh filming w- filming would ultimately begin in october of 1988 okay and okay. then the second the 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 writer strike that happened after that in the 2000s was that 2008 when that writer strike happened yeah thereabouts yeah like kind of because like it that. interrupted like lost heroes the office like that right era, quantum TV. of solace right. quantum of solace speaking solace. of james bond yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> Uh, so while Shatner was in the Himalayas, he entrusted Lowry to continue rewrites. And that was where uh, the search for God shifted into the search for paradise. Eden. Okay. And Shatner was not happy with that. Yeah. He felt uh, betrayed even by the rewrites, but there was no time to fix them. Uh, Paramount wanted to rush this into production by late 1988. They were worried about losing momentum with uh, this aging franchise. It was like, we need to strike while the iron. Right is hot yeah uh, another factor that would lead to this movie's uh kind of troubled rush production were the special effects uh like scott said the blockbuster industrial complex was starting to shift into high gear and mm-hmm. ilm the special effects company that had been doing uh a majority of the of the effects works for this franchise since wrath of khan were mm-hmm. busy their most talented artists working on Ghostbusters 2, 
and Indiana Jones oh. in the Last Crusade. I, for, I forgot yeah. about Ghostbusters too. That was another oh, summer crap. release that was just huge. Yeah, yeah. Nine. hell of a summer, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the, they were in search of someone, a, a production company, to take over for ILM. Oh. Uh, ended up finding uh, Ralph Winter. Ended up finding a uh, special effects company called Associates and Farron, run by Bron Farron. Uh, their biggest production at the time was the Frank Oz film adaptation, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, okay. okay. I mean, I mean, fine, but that good. doesn't really <laughs> sing out like, let me make your Star Trek movie. Uh, but the miniature point, work, the miniature work in this is like really good. Um, yeah. There's like some close up mm-hmm. shots of the the Klingon bird of prey uh, that is like, yeah, gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Right. So yeah, credit work. Well, Scott. Too. Uh, I'm sure that the artists at Associates and Farron would appreciate your kind words because at the time they had never worked in miniatures at all. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And it was a big source of nervousness of like, we've never done these and we have to do a lot of them. And they only had three months, roughly half of the normal allotted time given a movie of this scale. Wow. Like the the strike caused the delay, which caused them to have this compressed timeline for the special mm-hmm. effects, and Paramount wanting to rush, uh, you know, being holding oh, firm Paramount. of having a an October eighty eight start date. Yeah, because because if you're if you're starting at the end of eighty eight and then releasing in June of eighty nine, like this is no. not modern standards of like Marvel Studios just throwing money at a problem. This is like right. The 80s where everyone's struggling to do special effects and post work and get things turned around. And they're like, yeah, we're going to start shooting in October of 88. And this movie is going to be released nine months later. That's insane. That's an insane timeline. And uh, another factor is unlike Star Trek 4, which was kind of built to be this breezy effects light character piece. Shatner wanted this to be big Mm -hmm. and epic. Uh, he right. had what producer Harv Bennett called the appetites of a movie star. Mm-hmm. Like uh-huh. Shatner's just a big dude, and everything he does is going to have that kind of big chest out exuberance. So right. the uh, the special effects budget that they were allotted, Farron and Associates, was four point five million. But after going through the list of Shatner's ideas for sequences and set pieces, uh, at the end, Kev and Scott, yeah. when uh, Shatner was like trapped in hell he was going to like old timey boxes way through 10 rock monsters yeah yes that breathe fire out of their mouths yeah oh i've never heard the fire part i had heard about the rock monsters <laughs> and so they were like hey uh you have we have four million if we have everything the boss wants us to have in this movie it's going to be like six million mm-hmm. <laughs> and going back to the discipline of television production that had been keeping the ship so uh you know set for all this time was like you know we whatever we eat in this movie could potentially affect star trek six like the more we take in this one the less we're gonna have in this one you know right so uh sequences were cut 10 monsters became one rock monster and ultimately no rock monster zero rock monsters is it uh is it confirmed that the rock monster in galaxy quest is a is a callback to that or, Ooh, I like that. Yeah, like I've I've always had the the notion, just knowing this story, knowing about the the famous canceled rock monsters of Star Trek Five, uh, 
I always assumed or feel like I heard that the rock monster in Galaxy Quest is a direct reference to the fact that Kirk was supposed to fight a rock monster and never did. Uh, but yeah. I, I don't know if I've just put that together in my brain or if that was a deliberate choice. Yeah. No, headcanon accepted. Yeah. Headcanon accepted. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, finally, a big point of contention for the movie for a lot of fans as well as the filmmakers were the special effects. Shatner was very personally disappointed with them by the time the movie premiered. But mm-hmm. I would not put the blame on the artists. They suffered from, again, like inexperience of working on a project of this scale with these disciplines. Um, because of the time crunch, uh, effects weren't given the time to uh, add like the, the they were roughly lacking 30 to 40 layers of polish yeah. that uh, a, mo- a movie like this usually has. So things like, you know, a ship really blending into its matted background or mm-hmm. making it look mm-hmm. like Shatner really is standing in front of a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Um, right. They had to use rear projection instead of a blue screen. Mm. Oh no! Yeah, filming things like you know Spock's rocket boots and stuff. Right. Yeah, I saw several examples of this where it was extremely obvious, and that's the I don't know. It's hard to look back and to know intuitively, like, oh, they could have done better in 1989 versus oh, that is what was acceptable special effects for the time. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I never. Um, I don't think any of the special effects ever took me out of the movie, though. I mean, no, I mean, neither. Yeah. I, at the very beginning, there's uh, what there's a moment he falls off of El Capitan, and there's a long shot of a person falling that I'm fascinated by. I'm like, was that a base jumper? Like, I don't know how they did that. And then the next shot is William Shatter, obviously just hanging by strings, waving his arms in front of a rear projected thing. And yeah. you know, maybe too early to take me out of the movie, but also just I, I visibly cringed at that moment. <laughs> Uh, so the story about, uh, the Yosemite, uh, sequence, the way mm-hmm. they did that is they, uh, of course, couldn't actually film them scaling Yosemite. So yeah. they drove to, they built like a, a wall, like a 10 foot wall and uh, okay. to, to resemble a, and drove out to Yosemite and put it like in the parking lot. <laughs> and then use like good old fashioned trickery uh just to add to this movie's uh troubles there was a big uh teamster truck driver union strike at the time oh boy oh, no <laughs> and so uh paramount under cover of night and with a police escort had to like hire non-union drivers to drive the yosemite wow. set like off the lot wow oh my god and Yosemite is not like super convenient to Hollywood or anything. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's uh, a mess. Forgot to bring this up earlier. Uh, Shatner's inspiration for the Cybok character was uh, to bring it back to the 80s. He was inspired by watching like the Reagan era televangelists start oh, yeah. to come into that. power. That checks out. And- yeah. Yeah, and like, you know, credit to everything that Scott said about Gravitas is true, but I also think the the, the actor, Lawrence Luckenbill, like, does a good job with this, you know, kind of underwritten character uh, and isn't a parody. Like, he seems to really yeah. believe, you know, he never goes camp. He always yeah. seems very sincere in what he does, and that's that's kind of hard to pull off. Like, I weirdly, I was reminded of Paul Dano in There Will Be Blood playing this character that could have so easily been camp, but because he's, yeah. like, genuine, you can tell in his gut that he believes what he's doing, as silly as it is, then you kind of you go along for the ride. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
I, I don't lay very much at the feet of Lawrence Luckinbill. Granted, he never will be Sean Connery. <laughs> his he, uh, the the problem uh, with him in the role doesn't have anything to do with him. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not something he can control. He's not Sean Connery. That's not his fault. <laughs> right. uh, Shatner uh, casted Luckinbill one night after watching. Uh, apparently, Luckinbill had this one man show as mm-hmm. LBJ mm-hmm. that whoa. He, he would tour and do it everywhere. And they did a filmed version of it for PBS. And Shatner was like many men in his late fifties at the time watching PBS mm-hmm. and uh, saw luck and bill performing. He's like, my God, he has the, the grandeur and, and gravitas of LBJ. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Patrick Stewart was famously cast in his role after um, I forget who it was, saw him in a play. So there's yeah. um, um, precedent for that. That's why we have live theater. Yeah, exactly. You can get cast in movies. I'm trying to think of like who else in this time period could have had like, you know, uh, equal or close to equal sort of footing with Sean Connery. Like you can't get Sean Connery. Who else can you get? And it's like, like in that age range. Like, yeah, I think mid. Yeah. I think midway between Connery and this guy, Luck and Bill. Mm-hmm. He's a little young at the, at this point in time, but Jeff Bridges has like Ooh. cult leader vibes to me. Yeah, uh-huh, I could see uh-huh. that. I could see that. Um, yeah, because because it's like because that was that was a thing that they were like all of the movies at this time were doing, and so it's like you can't go go Sean Connery because he's in Last Crusade. You can't do Jack Nicholson because he's in Batman. You know, right. and so I like the only person that I can think of that I'd be like, yeah, I would watch a movie where he played a a Vulcan cult leader would be like um, Christopher Walken. <laughs> yeah, as like an emotional Vulcan cult leader. Um, I feel like yeah. he would Sheen? be like Martin, Martin Sheen? Sheen. Yeah, that nice. would be good. I I feel like he was still taking himself too seriously at this time, but <laughs> he would have been really good. Um, he wasn't. He wasn't Hopkins too. Yet. Hopkins, Hopkins too, yeah. Hopkins um, would have been really good. Um, James Con, I don't know. <laughs> James Con, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rolling in all these like in that age it, range. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. He's in the he's in the movie, but David Horner could have been a pretty good cyborg. Uh huh. Oh, that's true. Oh my god! Like yeah. I, David Warner is so fantastic, and his like eight lines in this movie, and yeah. every line he does in anything ever, and I was just furious at how underused he was in that so yeah. i don't oh, know yeah. why i didn't connect that dot that he should have been the villain in the movie uh yeah kevin i don't know if you're a doctor who fan but there's like an episode of doctor who where olivia coleman is like a mom who gets possessed by an alien and delivers like <laughs> bullshit sci-fi like the, the storm's coming and it's going to be a big storm like that's olivia <laughs> coleman yeah, that's that's what that's are you all doing? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going to reference way. the fact that David Warner was in an episode of Doctor Who, and he doesn't. Oh, he he's yeah. he's not that much better. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh man. <laughs> um, and but David he does Warner come back. Was... David Warner comes back in the next one, so he plays a Klingon in the next one, and that that role rules. Even though yeah, he's he's in it. He's only in the movie for like a third of it, and then yeah, you know whatever. But. Mm-hmm. More I mean, he's much week. better used, and yeah, yes. yeah, you'll, you'll get to it, but even, uh, yeah, he, he plays a pivotal role, and then later he plays, like, one of the famous baddies in Star Trek history in the There Are Four Lights uh, right. two-parter on The Next Generation. It's, yes. It's the torture episode, and just, he's wearing all the ridiculous Cardassian makeup and just kills it. God, yeah. I love David Warner. What a legend. 
Yeah, uh-huh. seriously. Three nice. different Star um, All right, so are we getting into uh, this? Real quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is one, one, one uh, crew member I wanted to highlight. Uh, a very yeah. important member of the Star Trek infrastructure family comes into uh-huh. play in Final Frontier. I'm sure a lot uh-huh. of uh, us well-studied Trekkie, Trekkies know this already, but this was the first Star Trek film to be production designed by Herman Zimmerman. Oh. Now, uh, at this point, Herman Zimmerman had begun work on Star Trek Next Generation as the production uh-huh. designer. Uh, and Shatner loved the work that he was doing at the time, quickly hired Zimmerman, and he would go on to work on the next like four or five Star Trek movies, as well yeah. as Next Generation, as well as Deep Space Nine. I would argue he's like right below Gene Roddenberry in terms of like literally affecting the look of what we call Star yeah. Trek. Absolutely. That's interesting. This movie does, I assumed it was for budget reasons, but this movie does use several unaltered next generation sets uh, standing in for hallways on the, the original enterprise. Oh yeah. It's the start. Not the one. original enterprise. This is standing the... in for the, the a enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. The second. Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> they straight up reuse the shot in voyage home where they revealed the new enterprise in this. Yes. Right? I saw that. Just, yeah. Yep. We've seen it. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So the final frontier uh, starts with, um cinema and just like a very sort of like Lawrence of Arabia yeah. style like British opening Beatlemania. in the desert um <laughs> with this guy who's like in the rest of the movie this like bald guy who uh Bethany pointed out looks just like uh Christian Bale's character in Thor Love and Thunder who <laughs> oh. she referred to as Glorp the God Smasher <laughs> great <laughs> yeah so every time he she he showed up she was like there's Glorp um, <laughs> uh, but, accurate. Um, yeah, looks just like Christian Bale in that movie. It's kind of kind of. Also, he yeah. opens in the desert. Like his opening in that movie is in the desert. So it's just like exactly. It's it's Man, almost like Taika Waititi would be like, you know, it'd be a funny joke <laughs> if we right. <laughs> we do a and reference to Final Frontier, the worst Star Trek movie. <laughs> they no, both have like a it. really a really great, poignant, strong first scene where you're like, I want to find out what happens to this guy, and then yeah. he just kind of hangs out. Yeah, just, just there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I don't think he ever gets a name, uh, and I vaguely remember from reading the novelization that he like that that it gives him a bit of backstory about like a lost lover or something like that. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, a bit of an inner inner life. Not in the it's not in Glorp. Glorp we see. Yeah. Yeah. Um so Glorp meets uh meets Cybok. We don't know his name yet, but it's like this mysterious uh man in a hood on a on a horse, on a space horse. Um who uh a gently horned horse. Yeah. He takes this nervous. guy's he takes this guy's pain away. And then the guy is like, well, now I'm going to follow you anywhere. Like, I'm going to join your your cause and your quest. Uh-huh. And then he takes down his hood, reveals that he's a Vulcan, and then starts laughing. And Like a real, uh, like, Robin Hood on a, on a tree branch laugh. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it goes on for, like, one laugh too long yeah. before we finally get it, out. Escape it also, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Shatner was... Um, a, like one of the points of reference for that particular shot was <laughs> Charlton Heston's laugh in Planet of the Apes. Oh, um, nice. Good yeah, when he's like laughing and then it like zooms into the sun, <laughs> like, and it's just right. the weirdest transition. 
really uh, bizarre, yeah. yeah. What did Bethany think of the horses with horns? She loved them. <laughs> I mean, you know, she just kept commenting on on uh, on how how good they were. Uh, they were very right. good actors. Uh, we're gonna you know. keep checking in on bethany throughout this recap just to see what an outsider <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um, sort of the normie thing yeah, yeah we cut to uh yosemite um which which uh, shockingly bethany bethany absolutely just was like oh is this yosemite did they shoot this in yosemite and then oh, yosemite yeah. comes up and i was like i mean yeah they did <laughs> this is literally yosemite right yeah, um, I would have I would have clocked that something about the rock formations and the, the combination of trees. Anyway, yeah, yeah. She talks about a she talked about like a, a an old coworker of hers that no one wanted to correct, but constantly called it Yosemite. Yosemite. Why would you correct <laughs> oh, that? Man, yeah. <laughs> Just... Imagine learning you've been saying something wrong your whole life and no one told you. Yeah, and also <laughs> that the thing you've been saying wrong is something you've probably likely heard of, but never put the connection together. That the oh, wow. th- yeah. that the thing that you've been talking about is also this other thing that everyone very famously talks about. Oh, yeah, that's great, crazy. Um, <sighs> so the gangs in Yosemite National Park, um, <laughs> and uh, Shatner is free climbing a bunch of rocks. Um, El Capitan, the, yeah. the rock featured in the movie Free Solo, uh, which documents the first time someone ever free climbs El Capitan. So it was sort of a closing of that loop. Spock makes a reference to, oh, you're not going to break the record for free climbing El Capitan. And when they made this movie, it had not even been done yet. And it was done in the movie uh, Free Solo. June 3rd, 2017, in three hours, 56 minutes. Wow. Four hours. That's uh, faster than I would have thought, actually. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm picturing like Chris Pine, Eric Kirk, like watching Free Solo on like a data pad. Yeah, <laughs> oh, there were yeah. there were moments in these, uh, the specifically the credit sequence where we're getting a lot of silhouettes of of uh, Shatner, sh- yes. air quotes Shatner, um, <laughs> climbing. Um, that reminded me of uh, of uh, what is it? 127 hours? Is that the name of the movie? Mm. I, yeah, forget, yeah. I always forget the number. Mm-hmm. Um, right. but yeah, it reminded me of that. And I was, I just, I got that every time I think about that movie, I get that twinge in my arm that I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> it, just, it takes me a while to shake it. Um, <laughs> yeah. A little ghost arm feeling. Yeah. The, uh, the stunt man who does make that fall, uh, at the time that, that hold the record for the long, the largest like free fall committed to film. Wow. Wow. Like it's really impressive. And I like, there wasn't a visible parachute on it. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, that's. I was very impressed by that shot. Crazy. It's, it's um, not William Shatner. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, not William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the insurance plan wouldn't uh, prove that? Wouldn't prove that one? No, weird. Um, weird. Do you think if if uh, Mission Impossible 2 was shot today, do you think Tom Cruise would have done like a free fall off that, off that rock? God, do with his infinite power. <laughs> yeah. He'd, it's, he'd it's be like, we don't chill. need to enjoy this movie. It's fine. Yeah. yeah, like in, in retrospect, it is very quaint that he's just scaling a mountain. Yeah, because yeah, I believe leisurely. I I believe you. It's funny you should say that. Like that, you know, we're not going to get this insured because I believe no one would insure his Mission Impossible movies. So he created an insurance company that would. So like he owns the insurance company that insures the Mission Impossible oh, movies great. because no actual insurance company ever would. Um, would go along with it. Amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> Tom Cruise is... does not believe in a no-win scenario. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is that is called. <laughs> yeah, that is Kobayashi Maru. That's that great. is beating the Kobayashi Maru. Um, yeah. but uh, but yeah, Spock shows up, uh, meets him, like sort of like halfway up the top or or two thirds up the top, and uh, he's wearing rocket boots and he's just like you know checking in on him, distracts As him, he do. falls. Um, and, and Spock goes and saves his boyfriend. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of boyfriend moments in this movie. A lot of boyfriend moments. Yeah. Um, there's also, uh, there's some great, there's some great thruple stuff because the whole time this is happening, it cut backs to bones and he's like, that's son of a bitch. He's, he's playing with his life. (laughs) The first line of dialogue in this movie. Well, after the cold open is McCoy speaking to camera. And I was like, how often, if ever, has an actor spoken to camera in a Star Trek thing? It was so yeah. weird. And he even calls he even, himself out about yeah. it because he's just like, God, yeah, this this, so this idiot, I can't believe he's making me worry and also talk to myself out loud. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just find the entire Yosemite camp stuff to be delightful. Yes, agreed. Yeah. I, I will say, though... This whole opening bit is a little oddly edited. I feel like it cuts around too much. Um, mm. There's like specific moments that I'm like, I wish we would have just held on this scene. I think it would have played better. But um, after this, we cut to uh, the cantina scene of this movie um, where the a, most Isley. Yeah, the most the most Isley. They they show up at this at this bar and. Um, there's David Warner. There's a there's a burping Klingon, and there's a <laughs> and there's a, a Romulan sort of ambassador. Um, and yeah. uh, they're all together. And then Cybok shows up and is like, "You're my hostages now." So uh, I have a question. Yes. So mm-hmm. the planet we are on is called Nimbus Three. Mm-hmm. Yes. The uh, the the kind of cool like punk rock graffiti Moss Eisley City is Paradise City. Paradise uh, City. Mm-hmm. Which I looked it up. This came out in 89. Appetite for Destruction came out in 87. This could very well be a Guns N' Roses reference. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but I have a question, Kevin. I'm so glad you're on the the, the show today because it's like uh, I, I air to your Trekkie experience. So I'm a little bit confused by the premise of Nimbus 3. It's like a planet that the Klingons, the Federation, and the Romulans are trying to like cohabitate together. And it went to pot. And now they're just dealing, yeah. living there. I don't really get the purpose of a Nimbus three. It's like it seems the whole point of the Federation is everyone kind of has their own space, right? Uh, like so much of Star Trek is a Cold War reference, and I was trying to think of is there was there like a Cold War analogy being made here? Uh, and I can't think well, of any. But I think the idea was that they would foster communication between the three empires by having this city that everyone was cool on. Yeah, yeah on the new neut- in the neutral zone. Um, the, yeah, or yeah, is it, do they say that it's in the neutral? Yeah, zone? yeah, it's in the neutral. It's located inside okay, of okay. the neutral zone. So it's like Got it's it. like we can't fight in here because this is the neutral zone. Uh-huh. So everybody's neutral. So all we can right. do is negotiate. That's like right. the purpose of this. Um, this is like a good like central hub for all of us to like come and negotiate except those negotiations have notoriously gone very poorly <laughs> in the past. And like, and let me say, let me just back up and give a moment of praise to the whole movie because I love the premise uh, of Star Trek. It was just a slick future post-scarcity society. Like it's, it's all in like 
how do we find drama within a utopia? And a, that's always been an interesting challenge. And I love that we're going to do like a gritty, seedy, you know, shithole kind of town. It's a very un-Star Trek-like thing. So I, I like the big swing of, of doing that. But it also, I don't know, it doesn't make sense on its own merits. Because like whenever the hostage situation happens, the Feder- the Enterprise and the Klingons are racing to the planet Everyone with the understanding that they're just going to like open fire on each other when they see each other. And like, it doesn't make any logical sense with the premise of the thing. I understand you being confused by the point of what this, you know, why this planet exists. Well, I, I, I think, you know, the Klingons, the, okay. So, so Kirk doesn't trust the, that the Klingons will not open fire on them. The Klingons right. are planning on opening fire, but it's, right. they're also being led by an idiot who just like wants to be the one who kills Kirk and will, will like, you know, start a war because, you know, fuck it. He's a Klingon. If it means yeah. that he's gets to be the one who kills Kirk, like whatever. Um, and so right. that's, that. I think that's the issue here is like, it's 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 personal decisions made by the characters, not like sort of grand plans in terms of like what's going on here. Oh yeah, because at the very yeah. end, the 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 Klingon member of Nimbus Three right. scolds yeah. the bad guy, and he makes Kirk be like, "I when I fired at you, that wasn't authorized by my government. I'm sorry." Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is just so. And and side note, this Klingon is the most hair metal that Klingons have ever gotten. Like, oh that, yeah. Is eased to infinity. But he, like, both the Enterprise and the Klingon ship, uh, I'm like, is this the best you got? Like, Kirk says explicitly, like, my ship is busted up and I don't have a crew. And he's like, sorry, you know, hundreds of ships in the Federation, you're the one who has to go. And Klingon, same thing. Like, you couldn't have had an emissary ship go and do the thing? Nope. So it was just slim pickings. Right. Yeah, because like I think the next scene of the movie is when we we cut back to the new Enterprise, still very much under construct under construction, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. There, there's still. It's like you get this great voiceover from Scotty. Scotty gets his sort of like diary, his audio diary, um, and and he's just like, "This is a real pain in my ass." They say that this yeah. is the the best ship they've ever built, but they haven't built it yet. <laughs> like he just, yeah. <laughs> he's like, "It's still, it's still under construction. Doors aren't working, and who has to fix it? This guy. I'm supposed to be on shore yeah. leave. It's it's the best." <laughs> Maybe Scotty comes off the best of all the characters in this movie. Like he gets to be yeah. peak Scotty. Well, and and I will say this is also notoriously the movie that introduces the I, the concept of uh uh Scotty and Ahura pairing. Um That is so weird. That is which so is ill bizarre. defined. So they're just bizarre. like flirting, but not really. It's so yeah. God, I have no idea what they're talking It's extremely bizarre, is. but I gotta be honest. I'm a little into it. I would have been cool <laughs> if they would have rolled with it and like into the next movie and been like, yeah, they are a romantic pairing. Like they've kind of settled down with each other. Like it would be kind of cool. Like I like the yeah. idea of like these two older statesmen, sort of elder statesmen, sort of just yeah. being like, you know, I we always like kind of liked each other, right? Like we should start dating. I don't know. And that's that's the thing. <laughs> this doesn't need a big rewrite. This just needs a, a like the opening. The first time we see them together, they're a little bit flirty, and the second time they're a little bit oh, there's some feelings here. And then at the end of the movie, they're like, okay, let's give this a shot or let's kiss. Yeah. Uh, but instead, the opening scene, Uhura's like, we were supposed to go on vacation together, and just what? <laughs> like, are we supposed to assume that this was already a thing? And yeah, God. 
so weird. Yeah, I think I think Duhan and Nichols carry it with their their charisma and also like just having been friends and colleagues for 20 years they do have yeah. that like comfort and intimacy with each other but yeah i agree it, it for me it was like wait wait why is this was this in the why? show because it's like <laughs> yes. my, my guess is that the thought process is that well they're they're in the military or you know military um right. and you know professionalism would dictate that like they wouldn't be showing this side of themselves like while they're uh-huh. working. And then like maybe the thought process is like, well, they were going to be on shore leave together. And like we get like this little hint of like, oh, maybe they've been dating for a while and we just never saw it right. because they're professionals. And just when they're at work, they're at work and they don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. this isn't this isn't like uh, <laughs> like Spock and Ahura in the in the Abrams movies where they're just like yes. they're just like every time a door shuts, like they're just all over each other. <laughs> they're just like clawing at each other. Yeah, yeah, Ugh. different problem. Or even or even to liken it to like it, it reminded me this is like of uh, Bruce Banner and Black Widow in Age of Ultron, mm. where mm. a lot of fans are like, "What's this? Why is this happening? Why what though? what?" Yeah. But even in that moment, they had us even in that movie, they had scenes where they were like after hours hanging out right. and the movie right. tried to be like, no, look at him flirt. Right. This is what yeah. flirting sounds right. Like, yeah, right? I also just think in general, fans don't like not seeing the introduction of a romance. Like they're that's like, the best part. yeah, they're like, don't give me a fully fledged romance. Like, I don't I, that's not do not want. I want to see them. I want to. I want to be able to judge the merit of this romance by seeing the start of it. You sons of bitches! Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the best part. As, yeah. As like, said. Imagine at the end of four, where they're like in the water and they're having fun and they're seeing the whales. If like Wallahura and Scotty were in the water, they had a moment where they kind of like find each other's eyes. Yeah, and like, right. A little they, even that. I'm like, oh, hey, but you know, <sighs> what are you gonna Rump. do? Yeah. Oh yeah. well. Rump. I was so. Broken hearted. So like Ahura brings two big weird bags of food for them. Bags of food. And just as they're about to pull whatever it is out, uh-huh. they get they get hailed by the the red alert. You right? wanted to see the space space lunch? Like was it a giant chip? It, it didn't look like a <laughs> one giant chip. <laughs> one chip. <laughs> and they were gonna look look dreamily into each other's eyes as they both munched on their giant chip. <laughs> Chomp. <laughs> be amazing. Um, so uh so she she has to start calling people back because the federation is like hey we need you to go out and do this thing yeah, and they're like you know the like end. our ship's not built yet right like it's still <laughs> it's not really ready to go on a mission so the guy yeah, says not- yeah that may be true but there's no one else with your experience yeah like right. y'all have the most experience and i'm like oh my god i just read an article about how like Gen X might get like dicked out of ever having a president in the White House mm. because like the the baby boomer generation just won't cling on to power and won't uh, retire. And it's like, God, it's like right. it's like the best, most experienced crew that we have are now these like people in their late fifties. Yeah. Right. And, like what has been happening? Like how are there no this God, I'm flummoxed by the situation. That they just shoehorn. And, like, the Enterprise not working is part of the same premise of, like, oh, what if things weren't utopian? What if things did break, you know? And so I like that. I like that that effort 
but it also leaves this huge plot hole of why are we sending this ship in particular? And I think they wrote too hard in the direction of like eight different people say, oh, BT dubs, the things don't work on, on the ship. And it's like, mm, could have done that better. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's similar to what they do with two, where there's also a, like, as luck would have it, you're the only ones, but they just set it up a bit more, more cleanly because it's like, yeah. they were on a, like a low level, like beginner voyage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's always been a tension in like Star Trek, just among fans who like consider this mythology is like, mm-hmm. is the enterprise like really lucky and like gets all the good shit happens to it? Or is there just a whole universe and we just happen to be following one ship and trust that all the other spaceships are having equal amounts of fun. Uh, right. but, and really I prefer the second one and it's too often that people are like, Oh, but this is the enterprise. And you know, they just put a big bow on, on it being the the super special ship instead of just, uh, one of many. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, she first calls in Sulu and Chekhov. Now, here's where I'm a little oh, yeah. confused. They uh, are not in Yosemite, but they are like they like it seems like they were they, they shot this in Yosemite, but they are not in Yosemite. They are elsewhere doing the exact same thing that the other crew is doing. Right. And Yosemite's very big, so they could be in another part. But of no, Yosemite. no, because the time differential okay. is different. Like. When we oh, go right, to when we yeah when we go to the to the three the the yeah the the Trinity they're like at a campfire like at night eating bourbon and beans, um, but I'm Sulu and Chekhov so are in the woods <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. So during there the was day, a scene, there was a scene in the Enterprise where Uhura was like, "What's everyone doing during their shore leave?" And Kirk's like, "Me, Bones, and Spock are going camping. Just us in Camp Yosemite." And then Sulu was like, oh, me and Chekhov are also going camping just us, but to a different location. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. Sounds yeah. fun. <laughs> and oh God, that exchange is the most cringy part. It, it's almost a meta scene. Like, uh, so she uh, speculates that they're lost or that, you know, they admit to themselves that they're lost. Yeah. And Sulu has to uh, bullshit that they've been caught in a blizzard and Chekhov has to reluctantly go along with this lie. Right. And what I love about it is that the characters, Chekhov and Sulu, uh, are just cringing at the fact that they need to do this. But I swear that I can also see the actors of George Takei uh, just cringing at the dialogue that they're being forced to say in this moment. And just, oh, we're, we're this far down the camp hole. It really treats them like idiots. Like, how <laughs> how did you not believe that Ahura would be able to look and see what the weather was where you are. Right. And that's a good, a good time to bring in the whole movie. And four was really fun and goofy and didn't take itself seriously. But Mm -hmm. there is like a, it it takes a step into like slapstick territory. Like I think about the moment where, uh, where Scotty bops his head on the pipe and knocks himself out. Oh God. Yeah. 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 I thought I, uh, I'll shout out a, a Star Trek podcast at this point called The Greatest Generation, where they just do episode recaps. Uh, and they've started with The Next Generation and are well into Voyager at this point. Uh, and one of the two hosts has consistently said that Star Trek needs a slice of cheese. Like, it does not a huge chunk of cheese, but also not no cheese. It needs, like, a little self-awareness, a little silliness. Uh, and just often they go too far in the direction yeah. of too much cheese. Yeah. Yeah. There's a... Uh... Uh... Yeah, I well, but I do I do like 
the basic conceit of the scene being that yeah. like Sulu doesn't want to admit that he's lost because he's the navigation officer. That's fine. Yeah, that's a character <laughs> and he, moment. That and he's like, "Do you know how embarrassing like... that would be for me?" <laughs> and I just, yeah. I like that. I like. I think that's that, fun. But that part they should have even made explicit for the audience he, members that didn't realize that he was the, I'm navigation the navigator. Guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wow. So I, I, I like the conceit of the scene, but the execution of it uh, leaves a little to be desired. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. Anyway, during the uh, during the, the beans and whiskey campfire scene, mm-hmm. uh, there's a really interesting uh, aside that Kirk has that comes back around to the final scene. It, it's kind of like what we that, that what we just said about them. All, they're all just going there. They spend all their time together on a spaceship in the middle of space, yeah. all their yeah. time together. And what do we do the second we have shore leave? We're just doing exactly what we do when we're working. Mm-hmm. But yeah in the woods like we don't have a family a regular people have families but we don't right right yeah. right and like i like that just there's the natural chemistry there that's the reason it works and uh, to the point that they just copied it in, in next generation with the uh emotional and and uh, logical characters and uh there's this really touching moment that kirk's saying like i've always known i'll die alone which is just like just chilling like that's a really cool thing for a character to say in a in a in a script and Never mind the fact that that gets completely blown up a few movies from now. His his eternal awareness of his circumstances of his death that turns out not to be the case. But anyway, emotionally he was alone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't have he was alone because he didn't have them. He didn't have the two of them. He didn't have them. Yeah, he stuck with Patrick Stewart. But yeah, spoilers. Um. Well. Uh. Yeah, and then and then there's this other grievance that I have with this movie, which is the way that Spock is written, which is a little too data-like for my taste. Um, he's oh. not quite Spockish. Like this whole confusion about like literalizing the lyrics to "Row, row, row your boat." That feels like a data thing of like, but yeah. I don't understand the lyric. I'm trying to understand the lyrics. And like, it just doesn't feel like Spock to me. Like Spock understands like how... what a song is, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky. Like how on the spectrum are you going to make Spock, you know? Right. Right. That's really interesting. Cause yeah, like now I, as kind of a, a beginner level Trekkie, I'm like, okay, what is a, what is a Mr. Data line? And what is a Mr. Spock line? You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Data seems to be like he doesn't seem to understand like the nuances of of humanity and emotion, but like and and, yeah, doesn't understand emotion, but like on a almost childlike level, whereas Spock is like, I get what you're saying, but also that's so illogical that I don't understand why you would care about that thing it's like it is a subtle distinction but it's like one is naive and the other is like ignorance i guess and also one is data is has a goal of wanting to be human like in the pilot episode all the way to his last movie he talks about you know his desire to be human and reach that goal whereas spock is very happy in his little middle ground of being half human and has no desire to go any further in that direction so right. his character is all about the tension. Right. Yeah. Like there's, there's that moment. Yeah. He, there's even a, a little line where uh, in the campfire Spock is like, well, as you're so kind, as you are so keen to point out, uh, doctor, I am half human. Like 
he's always been a character that's very comfortable and sure of himself in the for the most part mm-hmm. and right like yeah like he all he 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 makes allusions to he's studied human art and culture and history and knows all of it but he still has that Vulcan perspective of like a lot of this is makes no sense to me right yeah. right yeah. right um so so yeah so this is the part where i get confused because they they're like all right well let's go to sleep and they they like curl up and they they go to bed and then we we cut to like the klingons right and that's right. when we get that opening glam shot of the, of the klingon guy <laughs> just strutting down a corridor with his big hair looking like he's about to take the stage for a rock show um <laughs> and uh and um, then find finds out that they're that they're like heading toward the same thing that they're heading toward and they're like i'm gonna be the guy who kills kirk let's go um yeah now that we're but, done shooting this old space probe from Earth. Right. But then he we cut back to the campfire right where we left them. And then Ahura mm-hmm. shows up and is like, uh, sorry, you turned your communicators off. I had to land right. and bring you in. Wah, and I'm like, wah. why did we put shove that scene between these two bits? Like, why didn't we just have them settle in, take a beat, and then she lands and they're like, oh, my God, we were about to go to sleep. And now we yeah, have to well, we, we needed that Walton's joke. Yeah. Oh, right. The Wal- Well, the you Walton's can still do joke? the Walton's joke. That would be even funnier. You, they go through all of that rigmarole and then okay, she immediately yeah. interrupts their sleep. That's fun. I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, it just uh, feels edited oddly to me where they're like, I yeah. don't know where to put this Klingon scene. So let's just cut this scene in half. And shove it in there. Right. Like, the technically, the reason is, oh, well, some time passed. But some time didn't need to pass. Like, the shuttlecraft could have immediately landed. Yeah. And I feel like it's a funnier oh, it's a funnier moment if it's all in that same scene. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then they got three hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's also, it's also like a, um, uh, you go from, you know, her getting the call to bring everybody back. She gets Sulu and Chekhov back. And then we cut to them in the bourbon and bean scene. And then you're like going along for a while. And where is this going? And then she shows up at the very end. You're like, Oh, right. That's right. We have a plot to get to. And then you can cut to the Klingons, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Um, But I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, um, (laughs) editing, (laughs) Um, right. So I want to talk about the boat wheel room, um, which is like the room that they go into. And there's a boat wheel, like a a helm, um, a wooden Mm -hmm. like ship wheel. Yeah, like an old ship's wheel. It doesn't do anything. I think it's just for show. But I love the idea that like Kirk requested this room be built into this into the new Enterprise so he can just like stand there and move the wheel around and like make vroom vroom noises you know like as he's moving through space because it's just in front of a big window you know it is um, yeah it's an interesting uh it's like the pen forward on the, the the ship like just the place where you go to have receptions or something like that but yeah <laughs> yes, yeah i was, I was making note end, of right yeah i was making note of the new play sets we get on this uh movie and we get the the shuttle bay playset, which is super right. fun. Like it's a part of the ship that I always knew existed and got to see. And we get the the the, the brig playset, which you right. know they have a bit of fun with. And yeah. and then there's this random room, which is just like we put on some wood flooring and a and a ship's wheel. Yeah, I uh, I like to think that when Kirk bought it, or you know when Starfleet acquired it, like yeah, it was from this 
you know, this California whaling ship from like the 1800s or whatever. But if you like went back in time, it was like at the front of like a Bubba Gum shrimp. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, I thought you were making another joke. I was like, oh, many a whale died at the helm of this ship. And they're like, oh, oh no, uh, that turns uh, out to be bad. Awkward. <laughs> I got I got this wheel to never forget the voyage, our voyage home. <laughs> Remember the whale, Spock? Um, oh, man. <laughs> Gayest so, um, So, yeah, so they, uh, you know, they, they, like, this is, this is after um, they watched the sort of, like, hostage video of the hostages being yeah. like, hey. That is the weirdest staging, that hostage yes. video. It's what a small was part that? Of the movie, what was, why, so why did she, why did she, she step down and then up? <laughs> it's so strange. And then he, like, takes over the camera and walks aggressively toward it. What the? Who's shooting this? <laughs> it, it feels like... Um, like one of those uh, like charity infomercials that were big in the eighties, um, you know, like the maybe like, that's what he was doing. Because remember the yeah. televangelist, angle. right, right, oh, yeah, uh, maybe might have been recreating that kind of vibe because it's definitely the vibe that I got from it. Um, God, but yeah, so Spock may has a big reaction. Well, big for for Spock has a for big Spock. reaction to to Cybok, um, and uh, starts to like talk about his backstory in this. Um, this like helm room or whatever, whatever you call this room. Uh, and it's this definitely where everybody thing. gets married on this ship for sure. Yeah, it's the marriage room. <laughs> yeah. This is the editing point that I noticed because they're they're in front of the computer on the bridge, and he's like, "You look like you've seen a ghost." Perhaps I have. The very next scene is them down in this not ten forward room in front of the ship's wheel, continuing the conversation. So, was there a moment of like? Can we talk about this in five minutes? And the, I, no, don't come. Don't come with me. I'm going to go. And then I need you to follow me and I'll right. meet you in this room. And then yeah. I will tell you what is strange. Give me give me yeah. a five minute head start to brood for head a little start. while on my own. Just I love I like love that thoughts. trope in a in a movie where it's like, I think that guy was my sister. You're, and then cut to them driving like your sister. What do you mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, it's mystifying. So, uh, good. Yeah. Um, movies are magical. Uh, yeah. so, so they tell him, tells him the story about this, uh, this, this Vulcan who was, um, turned his back on, on Vulcan logic and reverted back to early Vulcan days where they let their emotions control them and rule them right. like animals. Um, and, uh, A passionate Vulcan. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, uh, and Koi's really like... excited about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, this is important to, like, Star Trek lore, is that it's not that Vulcans are logical because they want to be. It's because they consider it to be, like, dangerous uh, that they're they're not. Uh, and it's a bit unclear whether they would literally go wild if they abandoned logic. But they, they, they hold these truths to be self-evident that they need to keep the emotions in check. So it, it really is a big deal to anyone who understands the, the, the mythology that, yeah, this guy was not cool. Right, yeah. right. But he had the makings of like a great leader, Spock said. But he had he, he became right. a revolutionary, and they had the cast of exactly. Right, right. Wow. Um, so they show up to Nimbus Three, and they come up with a plan. Uh-huh. They're like, "Yeah, we gotta we gotta distract these guys." So Do they come up with a plan, or <laughs> this the the Ahura scene. Yep. Oh my uh, god, the Ahura scene. David oh, Lowry uh, <laughs> says that as a joke, he prefaces very heavily oh, as a joke. Oh, no, 
he was sitting at a at, at a meeting with Shatner and Bennett, and they were like, "Well, how are we going to distract them?" And then, like you know, feed up, maybe making a paper plane. Uh, David Lowry was like, "I don't know. What if like a her? But if there was like a song, and there was like a, uh, they thought it was like a sexy lady, and then they get close, and it was like a hurrah, and it was a trap. You know, bad idea oh first. And Bennett and Shatner were like, "That's great." That's that's, that's 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 an amazing idea, and I was like, no, no, wait, no, I I love these characters. Don't don't please. Oh no. Um, God, they, they set it's... up their Bluetooth speaker like there on the dune <laughs> to play some sexy music. She's got she's already rehearsed a thing. She's like, oh, thank God, I get to do this. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, at least according to like the studio sanctioned promotional material, uh, Nichelle Nichols was delighted by the idea. Uh, because she was a recording artist. She had a bunch of albums out. Yeah. Oh, I think right. she did really. I think she has like all the way up to her death. I think she talked about how this is one of her favorite horror moments. And she's like, okay. I know people don't like it, but I do. Because <laughs> I got to do hey, I got to do something I never get to do in Star Trek. Um, yeah. So, and you know. the only reason I don't like it, the biggest reason I don't like it is the idea of it, the joke being on Ahura for being like an older woman. Right. And, and so that's why it's always had like a. They're like, oh, we thought it was a sexy lady, but it's a her, you know, but the, the fact that she was so delighted by it or and maybe that wasn't maybe that's my projecting onto it. I guess it makes it a little less cringy for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just cringy because it's just like it's just very not Star Trek to me. That's it, my yeah. problem. Um, it's another very slapsticky moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh. Um, but anyway, uh. So, so that happens. Um, so, so that, that happens. happens. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, we get this great bit where they, they sort of like charge into the, to the city. And then uh, Kirk goes into the bar and he gets attacked by the cat lady and just like throws the cat lady into an aquarium. And she immediately God, drowns like the second she touches the water. Dead immediately. It, immediately uh, dead. I have a great love for Cats, the uh, the extremely awful movie, and this feels like a nice crossover moment between mm-hmm. two famously awful movies: sexy cat mm-hmm. lady attack. Yeah, and that the the just to jump back like five minutes, the whole action scene leading up to that is so weirdly paced, and this is part of it. They come into the compound, and then uh, there's a moment of pause, and like, hey, where are they going? What's going on? And then they're like, oh, it's an attack. And there's a lot of, like, fast and then slow and then fast that happens. So Shatner has some good moments of direction, and this is not one of them, this Mm -hmm. entire action sequence. And it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. On the topic of Shatner directing, uh, by his own admission in, like, the, the making of material, he mentioned, ironically, being a little bit more uh, uncertain of like he would kind of like air to the opinion of other people mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. experts in their departments of like what would look good. And so it kind of, I don't know, like the idea of these bigger sequences kind of getting away from him a little bit more mm, than like yeah. some of the more, but yeah, but then there are some really well-directed kind of more action sequency moments in this too. I mm-hmm. think. Well, like right after this, the shuttlecraft, like trying to fly into the shuttle bay just in time. I really don't hate that. I think the pacing of it is really nice. So, so- well, and I and I think too. I think the 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 problem with the sequence is just that like Shatner is wanting like a big Lawrence of Arabia like cinema kind of vibe to right. the, to this movie. He wants it to be big, 
Um, and Leonard Nimoy, when he directed action sequences in, in three and four, you can tell that he was always like, well, I don't know how to do like a big action sequence. So I'm just going to focus on smaller character moments and lace those together into an action sequence. And I feel yeah. like that's the best way you can do it because then it doesn't get away from you. Right. You're you're right. you're focusing in on smaller moments. And I think that Shatner didn't want to do that because he wanted that big epic feel. But the problem is that he just wasn't a strong enough director to, um, you know make that happen and make it and yeah on on top of that he talks a lot about how like so many of his big ideas and like dreams had to be cut for budget reasons and time reasons so maybe we're getting like a very hackneyed cut up version of like a big base storming sequence right and rather than acquiescing and being like okay we should just rethink this then if we're right. not going to do it that way, we should rethink it. He was like, no, I'm doubling down. We're going to still do it, and it's going to look like shit. Um, like, you know? <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah. yeah. The climax of the sequence will be a sexy cat lady attack. <laughs> yeah, very, like, almost total recall, the cat lady. Well, I mean, oh, literally, yeah, she yeah. has three boobies. So Thank you yeah, for being the one. Yeah. So. yeah, she got three boobies. I mean, you know, yeah. I'll say it like a child so that it's not it's not so. <laughs> I kept imagining like Shatner doing like his George Lucas stroll through the what the guys in the workshop and have been working on. Yeah. Oh, oh the cat lady, three breasts. Oh, cat lady. Uh, yeah, Be- Bethany at this point uh, pointed out that Shatner was a coward for not having giving her six breasts. Um, as a cat yeah. would have. Um, so, so like it, it should be three, and they should be th- vertically enough. stacked, not th- like you know on each side, right, not just like three across the front. Um, she's like, if you're gonna do it, do it, <laughs> you coward. Um, Counselor Troy was originally conceived with, I think, either three or four breasts, and I just, I, I, oh, I can't imagine how different. Next imagine imagine being seven seasons into that show and just like having to put that bra on again i'm just like oh my god i'm still doing this look at this thing this is my hell <laughs> do you think you're still getting out of that makeup chair before michael dorn oh yeah probably poor michael dorn yeah well they probably wouldn't have done cleavage just to save time they probably would have just had That's three true. breasts under a it. jumpsuit you know kind of yeah, thing. so that it's literally just like a bra that she puts on that has like an extra stuffing in the middle or something like that. Um, but can Worf wear a balaclava from now on, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make it simple. Oh man. man. Um, God. So, so yeah, they, turns out the hostages. Captured. Yeah, the hostages aren't hostages at all. They are part of the plan. They've been their pain has been healed by Cybok, so they're really into him now. It's a trap. Um, and he wants their ship. He wants the Enterprise. Right. You know, it's at this point of the movie because, like, you know, the the the, tri- the trio get escorted out, and uh, Cybox devotees are all over the surrounding, and they have like their their shroudy costumes and their guns, and like, right. man, you know, I'm getting kind of Dune vibes from this. Mm-hmm. Little Dooney, yeah, yeah, little yeah. Dooney. I mean, you know, space desert planet. So yeah. right there, right. yeah, that doesn't. All you gotta yeah. do is throw a hood over somebody, and you're gonna get those vibes. And uh, yeah, God, like, all right, go back. I already complained about Cybok not having a backstory <laughs> or like what his vision is. 
why is he on this planet? Like, what? He makes a big deal about we have to do this whole scheme just to get a starship. But why was he there to to need a starship? Oh, questions. Yeah, like, uh, please. Was this not where the Vulcans banished him to? Oh, they were specifically like this is this is your name. Yeah, I think they just banished him onto Nimbus. I think he's just been here. That's me. Paper horse. (laughs) Yeah. And then he had the vision, and then yeah, like this is all writable stuff. Like I just wish it had been reflected. I also uh, because the two of you have seen far more TOS than me. Do you think that the revelation of Spock having a half brother? Mm -hmm. For my in my opinion, I don't think they do enough with that of like. What was their relationship like? How did that affect Spock as a youth or whatever? And it just, well, yeah. it's actually one of the ballsiest things that Strange New Worlds did um, is that they reintroduced Cybok for the first time since this what? movie. Yeah. Okay. So uh, if it hasn't been mentioned yet, I'm in Amsterdam and we don't have Strange New Worlds access. So I, okay. I'm not mad at you for spoiling it. Well, I'm it's just not, it's not like, even a spoiler. Holy crap, really? It, it's not even a spoiler because they haven't cast anyone in the role yet. They just brought it up and you see like a stand in from behind in, in Vulcan jail. Um, and, and there's like, yeah, my, my half brother, Cybok. And you're like, Oh my God! They're going to Cybok. This is insane. So presumably he's going to be in season two, like as like an actual, wow. you know, oh, character that they're going to come across. And I love like uh, you know, I love it when universes get stitched together. Like I don't care for the prequels of Star Wars, but every time there's a little Jimmy Smith shows up in Rogue One, you know, anytime things get tied together, I just get this very hummy, happy feeling. So anytime yeah. people can do stuff like that, that that's awesome. And I was yeah. going to mention, uh, what's a face? Uh, Discovery, which introduces that Cybok ha- that uh, Spock has a, a stepsister or a, a foster sister that right, also right, never right. got mentioned to Kirk. Right. So Spock is chock a block full of uh, siblings that he raised with and never told Kirk about. Yeah, old uh, old Sarek got around. I it is interesting that that Sarek has a foster kid who's human. Right. A half human uh, son and then a son who uh, embraced his emotions and turned his back on Vulcan culture. And I'm like, why is Sarek such a respected figure in Vulcan in the Vulcan culture? Like, you'd think they would be like, all right, let fuck you. Get out of here. Like, I just (laughs) no more diplomacy for you. Yeah. Look at Tom Hanks, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, that is true. Um, yeah, I guess I guess in that analogy, Colin Hanks is uh, the Spock. Spock and Chet Hayes is Cybok. Yes. Chet Hanks is Cybok. Uh, that's going to be my key takeaway from tonight. I hope Great. that's who they cast uh, in, uh, in Strange New World Season 2. And Chet Hanks is Cybok. <laughs> God damn. Oh, that's good. Uh, All right. Um, so we, yeah, yeah, we get the we get the manual docking, which is a lot of fun. Um right. I I love the addition of just like the auto net that throw yeah, gets fun. thrown up to catch it. It's just it's very cool. I just love I love like super practical things like that of like, oh, this mm-hmm. is how the ship would work if this happened. They have like a system in place to like catch the shuttle. It's cool. Yeah. And, and Sulu gets uh, like one kind of cool badass Sulu moment. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like, yeah, shooting a uh, thread in the needle. 
Yeah. Um, and then I, as much as I like that scene, I'm so annoyed by the subsequent fight scene when everyone wakes up and gets out of the crash shuttle in exactly the right order to drive the script. Right. <laughs> like the two leads are going to have a little fist fight. And then Scott uh, Spock will come out just in time to have his little moment of hesitation. Right. Then everybody else. And I'm just God, did you all have numbers so, so that you so know talking... <laughs> what, when to walk out? So we've been bringing up moments that don't feel like Trek to us. Uh-huh. Um, and from my opinion, and I want to know what, what y'all think, the moment where Spock has, you know, a cyborg dead to rights with like a, a, a rifle and Kirk's like, murder him, shoot him, Spock, kill him dead. I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, what's what's this? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, you have plenty of chance to just like, you're under arrest and let's be cool. Uh, and like a little bit later, he says like, you needed to defend the ship. So that's. this i i I feel like this movie the the conflict in this movie is exactly what gene roddenberry hates about conflict and and doesn't want in star trek whereas Mm -hmm. like it's like conflict executed poorly i feel like this is what he's always afraid of and then like the Mm -hmm. next movie which is loaded with conflict but it's juicy amazing conflict in six is exactly the 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 reverse of that he hates that movie too but also everyone else can point to it and be like yeah but this rules so yeah i don't really care about your opinion dude you know there is this uh there is a shatner quote that made the rounds a few months ago of someone was like you know what 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 do you think gene roddenberry would think of the star trek franchise day and he was like i think gene will be rolling in his grave with a lot of the stuff going on right now. And a lot of people took that to mean like, oh, he would hate how like woke Star Trek is or whatever. But like, no, I think it has everything to do with what you're talking about, Scott. Uh-huh. Like, he hated how- like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he didn't like the conflict and like the darkness and uh, and also was a extremely far from a perfect person. Like, uh, sure. we can give him credit for coming up with this whole concept and also not think that he was the, the Paul of the Bible who we have to just, Right. Roll with everything he he's conceived. he was still a man in power in the 60s yeah exactly yeah so <laughs> right <sighs> um but yeah the the whole shuttle sequence though again i think is edited really poorly because they specifically say the tractor beam like lowering the shields tractor beaming the shuttle in uh takes 15 seconds to dock for the docking process right. to complete. So the shields are down for 15 seconds. That's too long when there's a cloaked Klingon ship here ready to, uh-huh. to, to take them out. But then they're like, okay, so we have to put it in manually. But the problem is the shields are still definitely down for 15 seconds. So mm. like, if you're, if you're going to say, if you're going to put your finger on 15 seconds, then th- you better edit this sequence to be less than 15 seconds 15 or, seconds. or else like, what was even the point of this? Um, it's right. so lethargically that? paced that uh-huh. it, it, it just, you know, sort of takes the, the wind out of their sails. I think the Klingons to, and you know, I stand by, uh, I find it entertaining, but you're right about that. And I was also, I'm also curious why the Klingon doesn't just shoot the enterprise where the shuttle is going to, instead of like, yeah, uh, missing the first one and going for the second. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't get it. Uh, yeah. So they get sent to so. the, the brig, the, 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 the brig play set at this point, right? Right. The right. brig play set. And they've got, this, the this little, is where uh, we learn that Cybok is Spock's half brother. Um, oh right! Like, why wouldn't you shoot him? <laughs> like I told yeah. you to. I told you to murder him. It was a captain's order. It's like you were er- ordering me to kill my brother. 
He's like, ah, that's stupid. Don't, don't like call just some random guy your brother. Like, oh, we're all brothers. He's like, no, literally my brother. And he's like, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, it's, well. it's pretty cringy dialogue. Like the the fact that he's like yeah. making a joke about like calling like your fellow man brother or something. It's just woof. Yeah, and they're they're being yeah. It's just very jokily written and performed both. Uh huh. Very vaudeville. Uh, that being said, kind of weird. <laughs> very shit. vaudeville. I don't know. That being As said, is the, oh, go on. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was going to say, I do deeply relate to Spock being friends with these guys for 20 years and never bringing up that he has a half brother. Never mentioning <laughs> it. So yes. weird. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, like, the vaudeville continues with the jailbreak where Scotty makes a big deal out of slowly, gently, quietly tapping out a Morse code thing only to <laughs> explosively blow the wall out. <laughs> Okay, so this is only going to be something that Nick is going to be able to understand. Um, so sorry, Kevin. But all, right. I, all I was watching was during this was just like, this is literally a scene in Rise of the Resistance, the ride, the, the Star Wars ride at oh, you're Disneyland, right. where they put you into a cell and then somebody like breaks down a wall to like oh, wow. to break you out and i was just like if i ever got to if i ever got to be like like oh i you know let's let like this you know like if i ever get to be a director or something and they're like oh let's let the yeah. director like play and be a cast member for a day for fun i've always said right. that like i would want to spend my day working on that ride being the cast member who says like after they break down the wall i'm with the, i'm with the resistance i'm here to save you um, nice. I, but when I would do it, I would just quote the Scotty line every time <laughs> and I would just break, break in and just, instead of saying I'm with the resistance, I'm here to save you. I'd be like, what are you guys standing around for? How about you see it? How would you ever, don't you see a breakout when you see one? Um, it just, it, it killed me. I was like, wow, this is God, just literally a scene in rise of the resistance. Like in that ride. This is crazy. Star uh, Trek five fan wrote that. I I, I I wouldn't put it past him, honestly. Yeah. It'd be a yeah. great like April Fool's joke to have like a James Duhon impersonator come be in resident. <laughs> we have to get out of here. Come on. It and only incredible. people who know Star Trek five would even get the joke being made. <laughs> oh my god, I would love it yeah. so much. Um, like one dad in the back is like, I know what this is. <laughs> oh, that's good. But it's a it's a great it's a great little it's another great Scotty moment in this movie. Yeah. And then um, he immediately knocks himself out. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. So stupid. <laughs> I guess uh, the kind of the meta, that... the, the unspoken, kind of similar to the, the, the Sulu being a navigator being unspoken. I think the joke of this moment is supposed to be, oh, it's a slightly different enterprise. So Scotty mm-hmm. doesn't have a. Qu- yeah. Right. I know this ship. Yeah. yeah. I know the ship like the back of my hand. Like, I don't Bonk. know. Maybe if the whole. Re- like, uh, I think the timing of it is right comedically. I think if the rest of the movie were better and if there weren't a bunch of yuck yuck jokes leading up to it and this was the yuck yuck joke of the movie, then we'd all be like, ah, it's so great, you know? Right. Right. I I also think it would have been funnier if he didn't knock himself out and could actually like comment Uh, on the moment. You know, just hit his head, maybe even fall to the ground and be like, oh, Scotty, you okay?" And he's like, yeah, I I forget. I don't know this enterprise, you know, like as much as the other. I mean, there's just I understand not wanting to explain the joke. Like I get like that's, you know, a typical note. You know, don't explain the joke. That's let it just be the joke. But like in both of these cases, in the Sulu case and the Scotty case, I'm like maybe a little a little helping hand of like explaining the joke would not be. A disservice Yo. to it. I and mm-hmm. also, 
like, like you said, that joke, that dumb joke has serious ramifications because you find out he really did knock himself out. And then that's how Uhura finds him and brainwashes him. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, they start climbing manually up the decks in the, el- in the elevator chooses- shaft. Spock chooses to subject him to the climb rather than explain his plan to go get the rocket boots. Right. Um, <laughs> like they could have yeah. just stood there at the base and wait, waited for him, but no. Right. Those, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to verbalize this, but you know, like they're looking up this long uh, shaft and you see these like light fixtures that seem to go up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Herman Zimmerman went out and found like 50 to 60. Of, do you remember like the, those sunglasses racks? Yeah. yeah. He like got 50 of those and he went up he to Mark Ben and he goes, look at these. What is this? And he goes, I, I don't know. Like it's the things that you put uh, sunglasses on and thing. But look, if you look Ooh. over here, those are like, lights. So just, let's just line uh-huh. them up. And he's like, oh my God, that looks like so sci-fi. How do you do this? Like, uh-huh. Herman Zimmerman. I'm Herman Zimmerman. <laughs> Incredible. Um, whenever they, yeah, uh, whenever the, no, go I was going to say ahead. when they shoot the, uh, when they shoot the rockets and they shoot up all of those levels all at once, they get up to level seventy-eight, which even even a passing Trekkie knows. Like the Enterprise is not that tall; it's this big ship, and it's not seventy-eight floors. It's not the Burj yeah. Dubai. Um, yeah, it so it it's very reminiscent to um the uh the uh the, what is that stuff called? Like the bubble drink in uh in Willy Wonka. Yeah, um, yeah. where they're, they're going up, they're up rising up. and can't stop. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but but it's also our second like major, uh, uh boy, my boyfriend Spock <laughs> moment of like <laughs> this really like tender moment where he like takes his friend off of the ladder and like holds him as they like go up. Um, it's just it's yeah, it's very it kind of cuddly. It is very and cuddly. then uh the button the joke at the end of the scene of like I th- I believe I overshot and McCoy's like nobody's perfect. Yeah, Nobody's which perfect. is a callback to a, the same. Jo- he's done that joke multiple times over the course of these movies. The nobody's perfect thing. Um, yeah. I think he said that to Spock in like, I, I, I think he said it to Spock in four because obviously Spock's okay. barely in three. But yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think he says it to the same thing because I remember thinking like, oh, that's the that's the end of uh, Some Like It Hot. That's like the last line of Some Like It Hot. So like yeah, anytime but... somebody says nobody's perfect, I think of the end of some like that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Good thing to be reminded of watching Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, nobody's perfect. Uh, <laughs> nobody's perfect. Uh, it's good. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. So so Cybok has basically spent all his time releasing everyone's pain on the ship, um, and, off camera, uh, on off camera. camera, and like and then just uh, starts doing the same for Spock. And McCoy and sort of get them on his side as well. And Kirk is the last one that's like, no, my pain is what makes me who I am. You're not touching it. So, uh, (laughs) David Lowry, uh, David Lowry had an interesting, uh, quote where he like going into the writing of the script, he saw the heart of Star Trek as the Trinity, like Bones, Kirk and McCoy. And Mm -hmm. I think you can tell with little things like you don't get to see how, the rest of the crew come to be seduced by Cybok because it doesn't matter. The only right. thing that matters are how Bones and Spock are turned. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. It's just weird that Kirk is the only one because um, 
the way it's presented, Cybox seems to start the process before people know that it's happening. You know, right. Like, uh, there's a little moment where Chekhov is getting turned, where it just there's a look in his eye where it's like, oh shit, what am I feeling right now? And in the opening scene, and so uh, he says he has a line somewhere in there about this needs to be your choice, and that seems like bullshit. It seems like he's already manipulating them uh, into this, mm-hmm. and yeah, Kirk just gets to like issue his own personal veto and not feel that from the beginning because. <laughs> McCoy absolutely would have made the same, like, nope, not me, you know, but he, he was just suckered into it with his flashback right. with his dad. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah, you know, speaking of which, I, I think it is really interesting because I, I forget this a lot, but, you know, I re- I'm watching uh, Next Generation episodes, like a sort of like mm-hmm. a best of list that I put together. Um, with uh-huh. Bethany, so she has like a, a frame of reference for those characters before we have to watch those movies. Um, yeah. And uh, watching the first episode, which ends with uh, an elderly McCoy showing up. He's like 125 years old. Right. Um, and it's like a cameo of like, oh, like there's there's McCoy on the next gen ship and he's like walking with data and he's like you know you remind me of somebody um and i was like watching that and i was like he's got two more star trek movies that he's gonna be in <laughs> like yeah. this is just post four pre five and he's like doing a right. cameo on this tv show like you know like he's been long gone from the star trek universe it's just such a weirdly paced thing but yeah i was just thinking about yeah. like oh this this came out two years after that episode of next gen he was in very strange man strange timing of that yeah i don't know like earlier you were talking about like uh rushing this movie to theaters because our cast is aging this movie this franchise makes no attempt to introduce the young cool uh officer who might be the you know the star of a future star trek movie the way a marvel Mm -hmm. movie would today Uh, I was thinking just how minimalistic the casting is generally in this movie. And if they did it today, absolutely. They'd be like the hot shot, you know, like Jurassic Park has the, the teens that end up doing cool shit in the movies. So, right. Right. right, Yeah. It's weird. The the, the lack of it is striking. It is very strange. Um, Yeah. So this is the part of the movie where it starts to lose me. I start to drift. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They go to the planet, like they go through the thing, the the cloud thing, and they find a planet. Yeah. And they go to the planet and they're walking around and they're like, oh, there's nothing here. And he shouts to the heavens and then rocks get thrown down and then God appears or, you know, so I suddenly they're in Stonehenge. Yeah. I take umbrage with two with. Well, so, okay, so they get to. Kevin, help me out. What is yeah. the Great Barrier? Oh, Jesus. Nobody knows. Like right. I was about to say, never been mentioned before, is never mentioned again. It seems oh. to be at the center of the galaxy, like the literal what we know in real life to be like a supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. And Star Trekville seems to be just a, a thing that uh, will blow up a ship if you crash through it. And they, they know that this is the case, but nobody's ever tried it. Is just yeah. really weird. And I guess That's... like just to extrapolate the, the whole rest of the movie, it turns out to be a prison for this semi omniscient uh, alien that's trapped there. So big they're, they're participating unwittingly in a jailbreak, seems to be mm-hmm. what the story is is explaining to us. Uh but they don't know a jailbreak when they see one. 
Yeah, and it's not part of Star Trek lore. This like the neutral zone is, so it's it's weird. It it really it is odd that it it does seem like Shatner inadvertently tries to remake Star Trek the motion picture. Um because yeah. it's it, it's structured similarly. Um you know, the third act is very similar and they it's just it's odd. It's very, head trip. Yeah. It's very odd. We uh, very odd. we get the return of motion picture composer Jerry Goldsmith. Oh. oh. Yes. They use the same Probably opening theme, which happens to also be the next generation theme. Um, yes. So, yeah. I didn't the hubris. Yes. Uh, I didn't realize it was Jerry Goldsmith all the way through. I missed that. And hmm. my problem with Eden, or I'm sorry, Shakari. Yes. Shakari! <laughs> is they're like hyping it up. They're like, this is the source of the cradle of life of the universe where all life sprung. And they get right. there, and it is a rock quarry with a filter. Right. Well, yeah, heavy filter. But, but yeah, but it is a lie. It's not actually that thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, I guess it's just in the context of it meaning to be like an illusion to like seduce everyone. Yeah. I guess I was like, and the the movie is treating it like, my God, look at this place. It's a, it's a, the, the, that right. kind of cool shot where you see in profile the trio and Cybok. And then the camera turns and reveals Nevada, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. The Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> I, I I agree with that. I, I also kind of like the false negative. I like that there's a moment of like, oh, has this all been bullshit? And then God shows up. But then they cancel out that by having it be bullshit in the end, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just a strange uh, structure for that. But yeah, it's like, what are they going to, you know, they call, call it Eden, which is not really a place that a Christian would want to go to. Christians want to go to heaven, but I don't think heaven is ever used as a word. Uh, so it's just like the planet where God lives, but there's no, uh, yeah, nobody believes in the exact thing that they're seeing. So Right. Yeah, they might as well just call it to. Olympus or something. You know, Olympus. Yeah, <laughs> that certainly is what the god looks like. We finally meet with this well, curly beard. <laughs> now that's that's something. It wasn't wasn't the original intention for this to look differently. Like he wasn't going to just look like God with like a beard and like you know the 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 guy in the clouds kind of look. It was going to be like a different thing. He was going to have oh, a different vibe, and then Shatner argued know, it but... into this, or the budget <laughs> argued it into this, or something. I think yeah. I think this may have been a compromise. Okay. Um, uh-huh. of like yeah and, and isn't isn't the floating omnipotent head doesn't that kind of become a star trek motif later on even earlier on because the that was something i was going to say is that star trek has a long proud tradition of godlike characters turning up like yeah. q famously in, in next generation but also they meet like apollo in an original series episode and and i i actually like that from a hard sci-fi perspective it, i don't think it's ever explicitly said but uh, just we are going to, as we explore the galaxy, meet aliens who are so far beyond us that they're indistinguishable from gods. And I like that they're just once in a while running into omnipotent seeming uh, critters. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like unlike I assume those episodes, the better ones and kind of what Scott's been saying is like Star Trek is there's kind of this unspoken responsibility of Trek to play to its highest intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, conflict can't just come from like. I'm mad or jealous or 
I want a promotion. And so I'm going to like, you know, screw everyone over the way that yeah. in a Roland Emmerich movie, you kind of accept. And yeah, exactly. I think, unfortunately, a lot of this, like, you know, the God just all of a sudden is like, give me my ship. And if you disagree with me, I'm going to zap you with my laser eyes. And <laughs> yeah, of course, this, this is a bad guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a good, um, like, it's a genuine laugh line when Kirk immediately clocks. Wait, this is all nonsense. Like, what does God need with this? It's, excuse me, he says. And, it's, yeah, it's that part is really well played. And I, I'm glad that they don't drag it out. That they're just that, like, oh, yeah. Much exactly in the same way that everyone makes fun of the, the con line. Uh-huh. That absolutely works in the context of the movie and, like, isn't as, like, yes. cheesy and over the top as everyone likes to pretend that it is. This line is made fun of a lot and in the context yeah. of the movie is sort of a throwaway line of Shatner trying to make a point. And I don't understand why everyone makes fun of this line so much. Um, no, it's, it, I it's... I think it's... Go on. Please. Yeah. Uh, it's I just, Kirk being please. really smart. And yeah. just clocking like there's something suspicious uh, about this. And uh, yeah, no, the, the, the con line, no, bullshit. That's an amazingly delivered line in a perfect moment. And it's only because it's out of context that people would, would make fun of it, which they're allowed to. It's the internet. Uh, right. But same thing here. I think it's a really good character moment in character for Kirk. Funny joke, but also serves the story. Yeah, yeah. just thumbs up yeah yeah i think it totally makes sense that this became like the meme line of the movie because it's arguably the only memorable line of the entire film right <laughs> that's true and like uh, yeah and out of it. context it is like mm-hmm. you know oh yeah also uh i have been misquoting it this entire series uh and yeah. i'm sure it's been driving listeners crazy i've been saying uh, cause I don't remember final frontier ever. I just remember it's the one where William Shatner says, what does God want with a spaceship? But that is not what he <laughs> says. The line yeah. is what does God need with a starship mm-hmm. starship? Yeah. And I don't know, either way it gets the point across and, yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I would add two memorable lines from this movie, uh, where <laughs> the exchange, uh, I'm well versed in the classics doctor. Well then how come you don't know row, row, row your boat? It's <laughs> yeah. just great. Again, just like uh, nails yeah. what those character, how those characters would interact. So I'll take um, the yuck yuck jokes as long as they're like locked into how the characters talk. Yeah, Kevin, you reminded me of another great yuck yuck joke of earlier when they're they're getting ready to ship out, and Kirk sits on the the new chair of the bridge, <laughs> and Bones like, "What's oh, wrong?" Yeah. I miss my old chair. <laughs> I old chair. I just I I love I love that as well because. The way that it's framed, it's like McCoy just like pops into frame out of nowhere, like just yeah. like his head just pops into frame. And he's like, "What's wrong?" <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so such a weird moment. Yeah, it's great yeah, it's, though. It's very strange. Uh, so back on Eden, Cybot goes into the fray and uh and takes on god <laughs> and yeah just hugs him to death basically yeah hugs him to death after he turns into him he was like ah oh, right. you you made the biggest mistake you turned into the one person i hate the most and then just <laughs> dives in there um and uh, uh 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 kirk calls back to the ship and says like hey get these knuckleheads out of here and so scotty brings up uh, Spock and McCoy, because that's all that the ship has the energy to do at the same time right now. So they can't bring up Kirk. 
and then they get shot by the Klingon ship, blows out their right. transporter, and they're like, okay, because so now Because nobody what? was checking, because everyone was watching the view screen, nobody's job on the ship was to double-check if there might be a Klingon bearing down on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Spock is like, hey, uh, Klingon ambassador who was under the influence of Cybok, uh, I need your assistance. And then we mm-hmm. we cut back to Kirk and he's running around by himself, like trying to survive like this God fight that's happening. Um, and God, then the uh, bird of prey like comes into the atmosphere and like shoots a photon torpedo one directly shot. into the yeah, directly into God, <laughs> right up God's like, ass. That's, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's extra weird because five minutes earlier Kirk had like called in an airstrike on himself from the Enterprise yeah. and for some reason that didn't kill God. So we established that God can be murdered with a a shot from a spaceship. It just, Maybe it's, it's just the point blankness oh, of it. I don't the know. Point blankness of it. <laughs> yeah. But uh but oh. yeah, he goes onto the Klingon ship, assuming that he's a prisoner now of the Klingons, uh, and then he gets apologized to by the captain and then they're like oh meet our new gunner and then the chair spins around and it's spock it's extra and weird it... that spock would stay turned around waiting for his dramatic reveal yeah. <laughs> and we get our uh arguably our biggest boyfriend moment of the movie uh he's like so blown away that spock's there in the gunner seat he's like spock and spock. uh he's, he's about to hug spock and he goes please captain not in front of the Klingons. Yes, uh, it's the best. So weird. And uh, to bring back the campfire line, Kevin, great. Uh, mm-hmm. Kirk's like, I thought I was going to die. And Spock was like, no, impossible. You were never alone. Yep. You were never alone. And I was like, Aww. why am I fucking crying in this, like, not that great Star Trek movie? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Movie. Absolutely. No, it's a great, yeah, that I've always known I'll die alone always hits me as just a nice little thing to write your character, write for your character. And yeah, it's just a nice little yeah. moment. It's good. Um, and then God. we go we go back on shore leave and they're back in Yosemite and they're singing row, row, row your boat and we're out of here. That's Man, it. That's so it. Uh, Bennett's uh, interpretation of the ending, or I think it was Lowry, was he mm-hmm. wanted spot because he was OK. They really go through the ringer in this one emotionally mm-hmm. like it's a much darker movie than four. So with the with the row, row, row your boat reprise. By Spock joining in, it's meant to show that this crucible, not only did they get through it, but they're actually better off than they were before because now Spock's singing, row, row, row your boat. And now that I'm, Scott, your point about Spock being weird in this movie is (laughs) now I'm like, wait, is that really that big of a deal that Spock's like singing a song? Yeah. Right. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if he's canonically sung before, but yeah, he's he's definitely done some weird stuff in throughout the original series. So yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't. I guess you you know there is this part where Bones is like, ah, I liked him better before he was dead. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I like that. I guess it it is kind of <laughs> worth noting that this is like a Spock that has been reset to factory settings a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and like he isn't quite the dude that he was in Wrath of Khan right before he died. But yeah, it still feels right. now kind of like a. Kind of the, the Vulcan laughing of like, I don't know if that's the big moment you thought it was going to be. Right, right. Yeah, it could have been depicted in a more impactful way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I will say I don't like the editing in this movie, but credit where credit's due. I think that it looks more like a movie than the last two Star Trek movies do. Yeah, um, fair enough. 
Yeah, I think it's. I think he, Shatner does have an eye for cinema. He has it. He just doesn't know what to do with it. I think, and also he didn't have the budget to back it up um, a lot of the time. But right. uh, but I think he did some really interesting camera stuff in this one. Like it feels a lot more modern um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and uh, and so that just for that alone, it's worth watching. I think. Yeah, a lot of fun crew yeah. moments. Yep. Yeah, there's a, you know, later in your franchiseography, you'll watch Star Trek Insurrection, which feels a bit like the Star Trek V in that it's not good, but it has the best character uh, rapport. Like, you just see they're fully inhabiting, they love each other, they're a family. So there's so many great little uh, moments a, between the, the main cast. There's a really fun story about that one that I can't wait to tell when we get to that episode. I'm um, excited, yeah. But... Um, uh, I wanted to add, like, just, I, I would kill myself if I didn't mention this. Captain Claw is the name of the Klingon hair metal captain. The actor's name is Todd Bryant. Long career. He's still acting. Uh, he uh, comes back in a weirdly downgraded role. He's the Klingon translator in Star Trek VI, who has, like, one line. Like, a, not even really a character, but he oh. shows up briefly. Uh, and he, to this day, he was Will Ferrell's stunt double in Eurovision Song Contest, uh, <laughs> and had a uh, is credited with a role in Drumroll Rust with Alec Baldwin. Oh <laughs> no! One. Yeah, the absolutely cursed movie. So we will not we'll be, be seeing that. Um, yeah, I don't think. So what a yeah. God! What a what a long and winding career. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He was on Beverly Hills 90210. He's been like all kinds of stuff. Gosh, wow. Todd Bryant. Uh, I, I do have one stray anecdote to kind of wrap things up. One last bit of Shatner. Uh, Shatnerness, I guess, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Harv Bennett went to go see a, a cut of the movie uh, and Shatner found him afterwards. And Shatner saw a print and he was like, oh, my God, like this is great. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to love this. And so he goes up to Harv Bennett. And he goes, well, how was it? What did you think? And Harv Bennett's like. <laughs> and Shatner's like, my God, it's so good he can't even put it into oh, words. <laughs> Man, his his hubris is legendary. Uh, I, I I saw William Shatner for the first and probably last time in person recently. I found myself at the Star Trek convention, ninety years old, and I was shocked at how like cool he was. Like he was just sharing the same old stories with this absolute enthusiasm and loved the, the like seemed to really enjoy being there. And, uh, I was, uh, I was really impressed with him, but I don't doubt like all the stories about his, his infinite yeah. ego and so on, uh, <laughs> seem to also be true. He's been to space. Sure. Well, ish. <laughs> yeah. He left orbit. <laughs> he left orbit. Yeah. Um, Oh, All right. Great. Well, uh, final thoughts on uh, on the Star Trek movies, uh, Kevin? Oh, like all the movies? Well, just um, like, yeah, I, final yeah. thoughts. I, Any, anything so you want to get out there before we let you go? I do have a thought. Or like My overall thesis is, about Star Trek is that it's always been better in in concept than in execution. Like, mm. just there's uh, there's a there's an abstract platonic notion of Star Trek that I think is better than most things that we've ever seen planted. But and so I think every Trekkie fan out there just loves the idea of Star Trek to the point that they're going to forgive the Star Trek fives of, of the bunch and, mm-hmm. and even elevate the moments within that, that they're like, oh, I've always known I'll die alone. That's a nice little touch, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's my relationship to it. 
I can watch something. I can say, okay, this is bad, but I can I can appreciate you know the abstract notion that they're going for. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great having you on, Kev. Yeah, so happy to be back. I I love your podcast. I I don't catch every episode because oh my god, you do so many. But oh my, whenever I w- listen to one, it's so valuable. I I started the Twilight one thinking that I wouldn't even finish it. Or that it would just be like, let's make fun of this. And it was so interesting. I just religiously <laughs> just powered through all of that for these vampire movies that I didn't care about. So that was, <laughs> that was just a blessing and what oh, great stuff you. you put out. I so, really appreciate wow. it. So happy to be a part of it. Oh, thank, thank you. you. We'll have to have you back on soon. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, everyone out there, uh, if you want to find us on uh, Patreon, support the show, help a third season be possible, uh, support us at duelinggenre.com slash support. Um, That'll take you to our Patreon page where for as little as $3 a month, you can support the show, get some bonus podcast material, everything we've ever done on Patreon, which is, I I believe, uh, getting close to a thousand things. A, a thousand, Holy crap. a thousand Patreon episodes. I'm I'm fairly certain. Wow. So um, check that out. I guess uh, try and dig into all of that material. Um, but uh, that's duelinggenre.com slash support, and uh, we'll be back next week with Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. Bye, everybody. Bye.